0: If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're thankful that you are here. And in the seat in front of you is a copy of the Bible. That is our gift to you. Well, as we've been studying through for just a couple of weeks now, the gospel of John, we see that John just gets right after it. He's not one for long belabored introductions to get to a theological point about Jesus. He just tells you about Jesus and he pulls the band-aid right off. And what he does here is he grounds everything in a explicit take it or leave it kind of bombshell uh, proclamation of the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John wants us to have no misunderstanding here about the fact that Jesus is truly God. And so he drives the point home from the very beginning. He he points to us by using He points us out by using this Reposition in in verse 3, the word through and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. it's interesting that we often think about the manger and the incarnation of Christ and around Christmas time we think about the humility of Christ. The, the reality that he left glory and he took on human flesh, and there we find God incarnate in a little manger in the form of the most meek and dependent form of humanity in an infant and so we think well he has divested himself of so much glory but one of the glories of the incarnation is we have to realize that that child that is laying in the manger still holds claim to everything in all of creation the entire galaxies belong to him so he has left glory in his, in a sense but looking into that manger there's something more glorious and that is that that child owns everything and is the creator of everything. What we learned last week is that as earth passes away, Christ in all of His glory will remain preeminent. It was preeminent before the foundation of the world, but He will remain so as it all passes away. There is this thought that should allow us to weather anything in this life. No matter what God puts into our path providentially. No matter what loss we experience. No matter what difficulty we face. We should be encouraged that our Savior, the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things, will remain preeminent in all things. We may fail, and often do. Our health may fail. Our kids may fail. Our spouse may fail. Everything the Bible tells us one day will pass away. But the one who was in the beginning will will reign and remain preeminent for all of eternity. John does not even try to veil his excitement about the gospel. John doesn't come in and say, okay, we're going to take this one step at a time. And I'm going to build on all of these themes and then we'll get to the point that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the fulfillment of what was spoken prophetically in the Old Testament. John can't handle that. He just walks into the pulpit and drops the entire thesis. He he is like the, the football team that dumps the entire yellow or orange cooler of Gatorade over the winning coach's head. You know, he doesn't just kind of hand you something to sip. He says, here it is. And here's the point of using that illustration. I hope that when we come to these words, they're more invigorating to us than if we took the ice bucket challenge and were drenched with icy cold water. I pray that these 18 verses that he begins with wash over our souls. And as we Realize what John is saying here that we magnify God in our hearts. God help us when we can read through the first 18 verses of John's gospel and do it in a way that would lull us to sleep. If we understand John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, I don't think that it's a good verse to ever read prior to bedtime because you'll stay up all night long. And just be enamored by the reality of what is there. And what God has done for you in the cross. With that in mind, would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1. John writing here under the inspiration of the One who gives us life at this very moment and sustains all things. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is God's Word to us today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful for the gift of our salvation. So thankful that we come to these words and we realize their. In their meaning, we realize the reality that we were once in darkness, but you came as our light and as our life. Father, You have bestowed upon us eternal life, not because of our decision, not because of our merit, not because of anything in us, but sheerly of grace. We truly have received from Your hand, through Christ, grace upon grace. Might we not squander it today. And would You write these eternal truths on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. This is the gospel, John's gospel, that is most disliked by modern biblical scholars. Those who say that they want to spend their entire academic lives divulging the meaning of the text. Modern liberal scholars don't like this gospel. It's one of the reasons why I love it. But there's a few reasons they don't like it. Uh, one individual, and in fact, an entire camp of, of individuals, uh, they're thinking, liberal theologians, uh, about this gospel and why they don't like it is this. It has a, uh, what they call a heightened supernaturalism. Think about that. We've just learned over the past two weeks that Jesus is the one who was before the beginning of beginnings. He's the one who took everything, made everything out of nothing ex nihilo spoke everything into existence that is somewhat I I think calling that heightened supernaturalism is a understatement there is certainly a heightened supernatural here uh, supernaturalism here you you see a little supernaturalism to the modern liberal scholar is, is okay a little bit's not a bad deal because to the modern liberal scholar, and we have to understand that, that modern liberals, they, they want to take the Bible and use it for their own predetermined end. They, they want to use the, the Bible to say what they want to say politically or, or what they want to say academically. They want to use the, the structures of the church and the words of God to twist men to do the very things that they want them to do. And so a little bit of supernaturalism will go a long way when you're trying to manipulate people in your direction. But there's a problem if there becomes too much supernaturalism. And the problem is this. God turns out to be God. And the liberal scholar turns out not to be God. and So, so they don't like it for that particular reason. Most moderns would prefer that Jesus be God-like, but not truly God. It's okay if Jesus is the God that I can mold him to be to fit the purpose that I have to make the world what I think it should be. But if he is, in fact, eminently supernatural, then he is going to mold me into something that maybe I don't want to be. That's the problem for most moderns. You see, and here we have a text that says Jesus was God before He became God incarnate. Jesus was God eternally before the beginning, and so this threatens those kinds of modern movements. The Old Testament says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That we can walk out this morning and see trees and birds and they can't see the sun. But we can see a lot of things that declare that there is a creator. Jesus is that very creator. He is the one who made the heavens declare his glory. And when we see Jesus, we see the fullness of the glory of God. You know, there's some of these liberal scholars that will come to John and say, well, it's full of heightened Supernaturalism, therefore, it can't be true. And that same group of people will read through John and they'll make this claim. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claims deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. To come to a conclusion that the Jesus that John is laying before us never claims deity is to miss the entire import of what John has leveled. Everything that Jesus says is in support of the thesis that He is the pre-incarnate God of all of the ages. Jesus doesn't have to say it explicitly. It's so pervasive in everything that is here presented. So when I hear people say, well, Jesus never said, I want to say, well, you have it. Mm, there's a lot that I want to say when that comes around. Most of it, the Spirit helps me filter. One, there is a, I think an entire sermon is due here, but I'm not going to. I, there's a deficient understanding of inspiration to say, well, John made the claim, but Jesus didn't. Jesus is making His claims through John. That's the way this works. Nothing was made without Jesus being the Word that brought it into existence. So when John says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John is speaking, but so is Jesus. And we must understand that reality people don't like this because of uh, lost people who claim to be followers of christ don't like this because it has so much of a, a supernatural tension it, it it declares in its supernaturalism that god is god and that is because john wants us to know that jesus is truly god secondly another reason that john is not liked is that he he puts people into two categories now, the Bible does this in, in different ways. We're going to see this more today. But, but he takes people and he puts them in an either this or that. And predominantly, the categories that, G, that, that John uses in, in his work is belief and unbelief. Belief and disbelief. These are two contrasting categories. And there is not a third, well, there's a believish kind of people. Believish people are unbelieving people. John just lays it out. Turn back with me to John chapter three. John three sixteen. If we read this rightly, we'll see the two categories. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life, even if this is the only verse that we have, it is a, we can inductively look at this verse and see the reality that there are those who believe and have eternal life. And so in the converse, there are those who do not believe and they don't have eternal life. Let's continue to read, though, in case I've misinterpreted this text. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see the, the 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 tension there and the clear succinct there are a there's a group of people who live in darkness, they do not believe, they do not have eternal life. And then there is a people who come to the light that their deeds may be wrought in God, that their sin would be atoned for and that they would have eternal life. These are believing people. Belief and unbelief in these two clear, succinct categories. And and, and John focuses continually on this belief and unbelief. Now, I, I do want to... and I, I, I think I could do more harm than good here if I'm not careful. I, I do want us to understand we've all in our own personal walk in faith struggled with doubt. Uh, we have... Uh, question things at times we we have wrestled with biblical questions I mean that's a pretty uh, universal reality inside the church or at least I hope that I'm not alone in that but even in those doubts and in that wrestling we are in the camp of believing people that don't believe don't struggle with belief the same way that believers do I hope that makes sense John wants us to understand clearly that, that, that it is not our works that save us. It's the reality that we've been brought to a point of belief. We trust in Christ. And so we have eternal life, not because we're good. Brian doesn't, bless his heart, have to go to the office every Monday morning and add up all of his good works. That wouldn't take him long. And then add up all of his bad works, and that would mean that the city gets no work out of him. And, and then try to reconcile the balance. My dear brother gets to go into his office every day, flip the lights on, knowing that his eternal salvation is rooted only in the finished work of Christ. And so it is for all of us who believe. And John isn't veiled in, in well, I wonder why he's writing this letter. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. He is very evangelistic. He, he wants those who the Father has given to the Son to come to repentant faith, to rest their eternity in Christ, that they might know that they have eternal life. John here puts it in and, and these these terms, these didactic ways of belief and unbelief, he, he does it so that we can't come away from his gospel going, well, I wonder, I wonder if there's a third way. I wonder if there's a believish way where we can accept the benefits of the gospel, but not take the full belief of the supernatural deity of Christ. And John leaves it very clear Jesus is the supernatural creating Son of God, and it is only by belief in Him that we have eternal life. The third reason, succinctly, and we're going to move on, uh, that often people struggle with this book, is that John is pretty pointed to those, again, who reject the Gospel. And in verse 11, he points out clearly the truth that there is a clear pattern of rejection by the world And it starts with the people of God, with the Jewish nation in verse 11. He came to His own, that is the nation of Israel, and His own people did not receive Him. And that is a very controversial reality that John doesn't shy away from. Now I think what we have to see that's interesting about this first chapter is that so much of the the first 18 verses, a good bulk of it, is rooted in time again prior to Genesis chapter 1. This really is the beginning of beginnings. This really is the, the weight, the thrust of showing Christ's pre-incarnate uh, deity. But as we move on in this passage, uh, we, we dealt with verse 3 last week, but as we move on into what we're going to deal with today in verses 4-8, through 8, we see that we're still in Genesis. John doesn't just start before Genesis and then just jump over Genesis like it doesn't matter. He really digs his heels into Genesis chapter 1. Look with me at verses 4 through 8. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's just stop there for a moment. You see what we, when, when we come to this passage, we have to be reminded, again, that we're still dealing in creative terms, and when we read verses four and five, we can't just gloss over the text and move on without really ruminating on the reality of Genesis chapter one through verses one through five. Why don't, why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter one? And we'll read those first five verses together. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day you see what what John is pointing back to in verses 4 and 5 is the first act of creation and the first act of creation is for God to answer into the darkness that, he, that there is he speaks the darkness and everything that is out of nothing and then he goes on to create the light in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. The Earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep. Now I think we just pass over that often, don't we, without thinking about it. We just read this to get out of this narrative that God created, OK, I've got that. box is checked. Let's move on. But, but friends, isn't that this, such, this is so basic to all of our lives, isn't it? When you walk into a room to get something in the middle of the night, what is the first thing that you do? You reach over and you flip a light switch. I mean, we gloriously in all of our homes have an illustration to remind us of the goodness of God in creation every single day of our lives and we take it for granted. Now, generations of Christians, if you told them, look, I walk over to a wall, I press this button, and light just appears, they probably would think that you're blaspheming. Like, that's what God does. But we do it differently, don't we? We turn on a light that has come through so much modern advancement and struggle. God literally just spoke light into being out of nothing. And this light is so basic to our lives. We can't do anything without it. But God, of course, is not like us. And we find in Psalm 139 that that even the darkness is as light to Him. God didn't create the light because God needed the light to see we often turn the light on so that we can build or make or work on whatever it is that we're doing because our optical nerve requires the, the passing of that light for us to perceive and to do the work that we're going to set about doing. God, God's not creating light so that He Himself can do the rest of His work. God here begins with creating light and He does that as a means that would pass on to the uh, part of his sustaining kindness uh, in the in the work of life being a reality of of creation. You know, it, it's interesting to find to see here that the first distinction in scripture is the distinction between light and darkness. Now that might just escape us, but I think that's really important. God here in the economy of how He has orchestrated His Word begins with the first distinction being that between light and darkness. Before we get good and bad, young and old, before we get human and animal, male and female, you have darkness and light. It's that plain. And what, we, what turns out in Scripture here is that He's establishing... First principles over all of creation. All things, look, verse 3, were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, we have, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Out of nothing He made light. Now, if we just took what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and it's just about visible, the visible metaphysical spectrum of light, and that's all that God is doing there. Okay, but I don't think that's what He's doing there. I think that He's pointing to something bigger in His work of creation. And, and remember at the back of your brain as we start to dive into this. Everything was created for the purpose that Christ would show His preeminence as Redeemer. So the light is part of the something that Christ created, and the reason He created the light that we see is not merely so that we could carry about tasks, it is so that we might remember that He is the light that the darkness will never overcome. That is why light was created in Genesis chapter. One verse three. Now, we go on to see all throughout the Bible that light and darkness are used metaphorically to speak to something again beyond just the, the, the physical constraints of creation. Psalm one nineteen verses one oh five verse one oh five. Your word is a light to my feet, a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. It's a metaphor there for revelation. You know, when we talk in in English idioms, someone might say, can you shed a little bit of light on this subject for me? Well, that's what revelation is. It's God shining a light on who God is and who who we are and our need for redemption. So God's light is His Word, His revelation. We see in... The promise of Isaiah chapter 9, the, 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 the messianic promise and, and its context in verse 2 of chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. The, the whole backdrop of Jesus coming into the world is darkness. The entire cosmos at that time spiritually speaking is a is a creation that has somehow come into what Isaiah says is a land of deep deep darkness so what we find is that again light is not just a physical reality it's a theological spiritual reality our world is one that is full of darkness and we see this persistent reality that the world is full of darkness. Some of you all really want to know my eschatological position, and, 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 and I don't often get to the end time stuff, because what I find is people, well, <clears throat> eschatology generally brings more heat than light. And quite frankly, and maybe this is my own ignorance, I have more questions than I have answers. I can tell you without any equivocation that post-millennialism makes zero sense to me. And it's because of the entire orb of theology that we find here about the darkness. Uh, Postmillennialism has some, and and I hope that I'm representing my postmillennial friends well, though they be few. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, uh, There is this impulse that the world's going to continue to get better as we herald the word of God. Uh, Yeah all right amen the, the problem is this uh, what do we see in the days of noah well, we see that the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men were only evil continually okay yeah yeah, yeah but jay the, the the word wasn't fully developed okay fine let's go with our post-millennial friends on to and if you really are post-millennial here today, I'm not making fun of you. I, I know there's a cogent argument. But it, we come to Jesus, and boy, everybody's just hungering and thirsting, and the entire nation of Israel is ready to receive the Messiah because they are so enamored and, and, and intertwined with the light. Nope. Still a context of darkness. And then we get to the reality that, that Christ Himself tells us that as the days of the coming of the Son of Man uh, will be, uh, as the days of... Oh, geez, now I'm going to the uh, When Christ returns, it will be just like it was when Noah was on the face of the earth. The persistent, present, spiritual darkness in the Word of God is the reality of the spiritual condition of man apart from Christ. Hard stop. We don't begin to illuminate the world by our own theological reasonings, by our structures. There is only one who is the light. And he's the only one that can bring life. I did not intend to pick an eschatological fight with my post friends today, but here we are so there we see this persistent reality of darkness darkness is friends metaphorically it's it's where god is not known it's where we work it's where we go to school we call ourselves a christian nation if there is a christian nation that nation is mad that we've used the term christian nation to describe this nation Darkness is where God is not known. I, I just would make this argument. Christian nations do not vote to uphold abortion, to laud homosexual marriage, and to mutilate the bodies of children. They just don't. Darkness is where God is not known. It's where his hope is not found. It's where his word is not heralded. It's lostness. It's despair. It's depression. It's danger. Even lost people, you, 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 this is an interesting reality about the metaphorical expression of darkness. Even those who are outside of Christ who sit in darkness know that there's a darkness. There are those who will talk about being who are lost people. They talk about being a very dark place in their life where they see a particular movie and they say, well, it's really dark. I mean, there, there's an understanding of the spiritual connotation of the darkness. But there's something different about you and I, isn't there? I mean, Isaiah says there's something different about you and I. He says that the people who walked in darkness have what? Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of dark deepness, on them has light shone. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. John picks up in that, on that theme of darkness and light, and he's pointing back to Genesis and, and the reality that God has given us. Listen, we could exist if God had chosen to create the world with just one static, uh, version of light or no light, or whatever he chose to do. But he chose to make dark and lightness, and for those things to be divided, that Jay Clatworthy could stand up here this morning and declare the glory of God in the fact that the, the, the darkness has not overcome the light. That when the sun rises, the darkness has nothing to do but flee. That is the reality, even yet. And John picks up on this in him. Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. And and light again here points to life. Without light there is no life. And one time when I was a seventh grade science student, did a do you ever y'all ever have to do those trifold presentations for your class where you do an experiment? I remember studying very hard to do my experiment where you, where you put jelly on the bottom of uh, leaves of a plant and then let it set and, and that blocks the stomata on the plant and so photosynthesis can't happen Then you extract the, the chlorophyll and, and the, the, the cells out of the plant and you measure how much is in there and I did all of that because I knew this. I was creating a hypothesis that I knew would come... To the, the, the conclusion that without light uh, there would be and without oxygen there would be no uh, life in the plant and why did I do that because I'm lazy I wanted something that was so obvious that I knew the conclusion would be right so that I could start working on the board so that I didn't have to the project twice we need light for life it's so easy a seventh grader could do it and the least of seventh graders at that And we need to note, though, this, this, this competition between the light and, and, and the darkness. In, in the Genesis, Genesis account, there is a very real danger that, again, God could have created the darkness and created everything without form. And there was a sense that, 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 that the earth didn't have the same contour and shape and everything that it does in, in our understanding today. And in that moment, God could have just chosen to, to stop there. And there would have been nothing but darkness. What we, what we find in that reality in Genesis chapter 1, let's again go back to Genesis chapter 1. I know I'm pointing out things to you that seemingly are so obvious, but I hope that they hit you spiritually in a new way. The, the, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in between that and verse 3, and, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. What, what we learned there is that without God, there is no light. And without God, there is no life. I really would love for an Armenian then to step up and explain to me how they can bring themselves from a position of spiritual death and darkness, but out of their own faith, they've created the light. It doesn't work that way. The only way that we believe that we receive the Gospel is that the light has shone on us and brought life. There there is this, this distinction that is so clear in the text. But we need to see something more about the distinction of light and darkness, and that is, if the darkness rules, then chaos exists and order often doesn't come to be. Look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 35, Jesus says, "...the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light." There Jesus is again using the imagery, the metaphorical expression of light and darkness and and the reality that there is a competition between the two. Jesus speaks here of of His children, those who would believe on Him as being the children of light and they set amongst the children of darkness. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness." doesn't say at one time you were in the darkness but you overcame the darkness by your own creative reasoning and you brought yourself to the light you were prior to Christ the darkness but now you are the light you are light in the lord walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what the what is pleasing to the lord a story Of Jesus in John's Gospel is John is here in his Gospel proclaiming to the world who Jesus is and why he came and why it matters and so he begins with this grand reality and this should encourage all of our hearts today. Jesus is the light. That's the the, that after he's heralded as the creator and the sustainer. Here, John says Jesus is the light. And what you need to know about the light is the light has not over, uh, the the darkness has not overcome the light. And this tells us something. This tells us something about what's going to happen in John's gospel. This is a foreshadowing of what John is going to explain all throughout his gospel, and that is this Jesus is the light. The darkness has not overcome him and will not overcome him, but the darkness is going to try to overcome him. And the darkness is going to try to overcome his people. That 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 is a theme all throughout John's Gospel. It's a theme that we all live in and know as believers in Christ. But we know gloriously from this text it won't succeed. It'll bring drama and an attempt, but ultimately the light of Christ will overcome and conquer the darkness. You see, the Gospel is a Gospel of light and darkness. Again, those didactic clear darkness, unbelief. Belief, light. Very clear terms. In the lives of people, we're going to see throughout John's Gospel the reality that though the light of Christ is not overcome in individual lives at times, and for some of us, this is a painful reality, the darkness have, has overcome the light in the lives of some. Now that doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. It means that they never had it. It means that they never really were believing. Hebrews chapter 6 is a passage all the time that, that, that comes up of, well, what do you believe this passage is really saying? That, that you can taste of the, the goodness of Christ and all of these things, and, and then, but you can fall away. And, and, and Armenian people use that as a proof text to, to teach that you can lose your salvation. No, these are Jewish people that have come into contact with teaching about Christ. They've been right on the fringe. They've seen miracles. They've, they, they've experienced what's going on in the actual body of Christ, and yet they've walked away. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is, and there's a whole other argument, What he is pressing into these people is believe, come to Christ, rest in him, be in that category of believers. And what we know from John's gospel, though, is the the, the reality that in, in even the life of Christ, there are those who betray the light. Uh, I find it interesting sometimes people, when they're looking for a biblical teacher, they'll look at everyone that surrounds them, which isn't a bad thing to do. But then if they find somebody, you know, second tier removed from the individual that they're, they're learning from, oh, well, then they must all be heretics. Well, I mean, if we apply that logic to, to every human relationship, Jesus was, well, he had his Judas. Uh, we have to be careful about seeing the reality that there is this cosmic spiritual battle going on, And that people will present themselves to be believers. And what we'll find out in the end is that they're just simply not. And Jesus knew who people were. Jesus knew about the darkness, didn't He? We don't even get... Look, look, in John... Sorry, I'm almost as excited as John. Look in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25... Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Human beings love provocative signs. Oh, we just do. There's entire church movements that are about, give us a sign. And I'm not judging the... I, I, I just. I, I think we have to be careful about this. Because we see here... People believed because of the signs that that he was doing. But then verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He didn't need a testimony. He didn't need a witness that would point out who you and I are. At our heart level, He knew why He came into the dark world and that was to be the light and to redeem His people from their sins. The battle of light and darkness is a thread throughout this whole Gospel. This is like reading the end at the very beginning. This is the conclusion again stated at the very beginning. There there will be a conflict, John says, but the end is that the light wins over the darkness. The, The one who came into the world is light and he is life. Death and darkness will try to overcome the light and the life, but the light and the life will win. That's a very good thing to believe and to know to be true today. I really do believe that the whole gospel in a nutshell is here in verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God wins. I don't mean to beat up on my Armenian friends, but Armenianism doesn't get to say verses four and five because the light, the the darkness does win. God tries to save some people, but the darkness just overcomes where God's attempting to save. My Bible says that the light is never overcome by darkness. When God shines His grace into the heart of an unregenerate sinner to bring about conversion, it works 100% of the time. doesn't mean people don't wrestle with truth. It doesn't mean that people won't say they believe and then walk away. It does mean that when God saves, He saves from beginning to end. Well, now we would think at this point, I mean, if your hair's not blown back a little bit, if you have any, uh, I'm not picking on you, Butch. Uh, If your hair's not blown back by these realities that Jesus is creator, he's sustainer, he is the light that will not be overcome. He is the one who gives life to his people. If we, if we come to this point, I, I think at this point our appetite is stoked that, alright, now tell me more about Jesus. And then John does something really interesting. He pivots from Jesus. Look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Again, I've got to ask the question, what's happening here? Jesus has been built up. Jesus is the one who's before all things. Jesus is the one who through all things are made. He is the light. He is the life. But Jesus isn't that guy. That's what John is saying. Jesus is creator. He's sustainer. He is life. He is light. But He's not John. That's a really abrupt, pivoting way to write um, the text. Uh, what we have to understand here, and we probably ask the question, why John the Baptist here? Um, if you, as we look throughout the other Gospels, we're going to see this as a common theme. We've got to do it expeditiously. Um, uh, there are similarities between the ministry of Jesus publicly and the ministry of John. And here, John is making a distinction about John the Baptist's ministry. He knows that John was one who went about preaching a a, a message of judgment and repentance and the coming of God's kingdom. And and our need for for repentance in an earth-shattering way. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. What we find in in these verses is that John is of divine origin. That doesn't mean that he is as a divinity in the same sense as Jesus, but he has a divine origin and a divine mission. He came as a witness to bear witness verse 6 there was a man sent from God whose name was John John's origin is divine in his in his uh, uh, being sent by God and he came with a particular mission verse 7 he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light Jesus and John are not the same, and John wants us to be clear that they're not the same. He wants to make clear that that the early church did not conflate the two. He wants to point out the clear reality. Look in verse 29, of what John's entire ministry was about. John says here in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think about a, a. professor friend of mine one of my favorite professors in my undergrad who studied at Edinburgh University and who was uh, born into an orthodox Jewish family who grew up understanding the Old Testament and friends if you ever want to hear somebody preach the Old Testament this brother could do it um, and, and he went to do missionary missions work in the Philippines and there was a Baptist preacher there that started a Bible study with him and, and Dr. Adams um said, well, I can't read your Bible. Orthodox Judaism won't allow me to read the New Testament. And the pastor said, well, we'll just study the Old Testament. We can read uh, from your scriptures. And so they are working their way through the sacrificial system. And this honorary Baptist preacher did what great honorary Baptist preachers do. And he just simply asked the question, why is it that your people don't continue to do the sacrificial system that is prescribed here? And Dr. Adams couldn't answer the question. And days went on, and it started to really bother him. So he broke into a meeting, if memory serves me correct, and asked this Baptist preacher, you need to come to your office right now and answer the question of why we don't do these sacrificial ordinances anymore. The Baptist pastor said, fine, but you're going to have to break your rule. I'm going to have to use my Bible. And he said, fine. And he read one verse, verse 29, that I can't read without thinking of my friend James Adams. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's all completed in Christ. He is the atonement. He is the one who bears the wrath of God and not only placates the wrath of God, but removes it for all of eternity. What a a joy that is. But again, this is an odd sequence. And if you'll indulge me, Mark, turn to Mark chapter one. We're going to fly through these passages, so I'm going to have to breathe quick. Um, Mark chapter one, starting in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send a messenger before your face, before your face, that's I'm sending John, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey and he preached saying after me comes he who is mightier than i the strap of whose sandals i am not worthy to stoop down and untie i have baptized you with water but he who he will baptize you with the holy spirit mark here tells us behold i send a My messenger before your face, baptizing. That's who John the Baptist was. He's, He's not the one. He's the one who bears witness to the one. He's the one who bears witness to the Word. John's mission was not to give eternal life. It was to give a message of repentance to believe on the one who could give eternal life. And he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. And then in verses 7 through 10, there's a message there again of judgment, repentance. And then continuing in verse 11... John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, in, 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 in the parenthetical here, I, I think we need to see something in Matthew chapter 17. Turn in Matthew chapter 17. I'm telling you, we're going to boogie through this. This is after the transfiguration. And the Bible records, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one... Uh, The vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, and the disciples asked him, "Then why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come? Now, where did they get that? Where's that question coming from? You don't have to turn there, but these are the last words of the Old Testament in Malachi, Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, the grand, the great, and awesome before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, the Jewish people do not believe in reincarnation. They never have. They don't today. That's not part of their theological framework. So Malachi is not saying... Elijah will will be raised from the dead. They do understand, and what is being said, is that his prophetic office will be fulfilled through another. Who is that other? Let's continue in chapter 17. He answered... Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they planned. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The fulfillment of... of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is found in the ministry of John the Baptist. Now let's look finally at Luke to get a full orb sense of this. And we have to see here that there is this miraculous conception in both. I didn't say immaculate, I said miraculous conception for both John and Jesus. In John the Baptist, it's the reality that we'll see in Luke's uh, account here uh, that his parents were advanced in age. And so the fact that they conceived, even through normative conjugal acts, was a miraculous event appointed by God. Of course, Jesus, his conception was immaculate. He was virgin born. Both were miraculous, but there's a distinction in their persons and what they accomplish. Luke Chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Adijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while, there, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. I think that's an interesting. He was chosen by lot. The lot was the means. God was the one choosing him. Now I lost my place. Technical difficulties, I'll get there. Uh, To the Lord to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall... To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, what is John doing as we come back to John chapter 1? John is listing out who Jesus is that he is God before the beginning of the world. He is the one who's created all things, who, sust- who sustains all things, who is the light that gives life then John, he says, is the one not who gives light, but he's the one who came to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of what the Old Testament has promised in the Messiah. John is the chosen vessel witnessing to the glory of Christ. I think every person in here today needs to be thankful for John the Baptist and his, his prophetic office and witnessing of who Jesus is. Because here's the reality for you and I. We all need a witness. We all need someone to come into our lives and to point us in the direction of Christ. Now ultimately we know that it is the Spirit of God who gives life. And it is he who regenerates our hearts. But here we have clearly the testimony of one who was the witness. And the reality is that we would not know who the light was without the witness. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm thankful for the witness of an older lady named Lorena C. Who passed away in the very first few years that Sarah and I were born, that she walked into a vacation Bible study room and talked to a squirrely little kid that couldn't sit down and shut up and pay attention about what the gospel was. And I am so thankful that she declared the gospel to me, and for the first time I understood who the light was and that He had come into the world. And so I'm also thankful for John the Baptist's witness, and, and what this should tell us is this. Friends, I am a diehard believer in the doctrines of grace and the reality that God saves unilaterally alone. But he chooses to use witnesses. He's chosen that here, and he chooses to do that now. In fact, he's given all of us who have seen the light the command to bear witness of the light. So here we see the reality that Jesus is the predetermined plan to save his people from their sin. He is the one who ultimately has brought the light into the world that we might believe on him and have everlasting life. And the question then that John stands after speaking of John the Baptist, the witness pointing to the light that he asks all of us today is do you believe in this light? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who is the light of the world and the only one that can give life to men? If you answer that question, yes, as we conclude today, I hope it's not just a, yeah, I believe that. You don't begin to understand the darkness if you can answer the question, do you believe in a, mm mm-hmm, kind of fashion the entire globe for generations permeated by human wickedness depravity such that God was justified in Noah's day to wipe out all but a few of the human race friends that depravity has not changed We prove over and over and over every news cycle that God is vindicated in His judgments against people. We were in the darkness without hope in the world, without the Word of God, without the mercies of God, without the redeeming hope that we have of heaven. So if we can come today and answer the question, do you believe that Jesus is the light that gives life? boy, we ought to act like we're Pentecostal. Now, we don't need to go there, but we ought to act like we're excited about that reality, that yes, I believe, and, and that reality that that light has permeated my life and that I do believe is such a grand reality. It's a grand reality to know that Jesus is both the pre-incarnate Creator, your Creator, but He's also your Redeemer. Friends, don't ever get over that fact. Don't ever wake up And flip the light on and say, here's another day. Flip the light on and be reminded, God did that in the beginning. He created me and He's redeemed me. Now all the rest of this day and the rest of this week and the rest of this year and the rest of this life is to bring glory to Him and to be a witness to who He truly is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning so thankful that You are the light and that You have brought life to so many. Father, we still are Your children. We are children of the light. We are children of the light only because of Your divine counsel. Father, we come this morning amidst a wicked, perverse, dark generation. And so we ask that You would use our lives for the furtherance of Your kingdom. We ask that you would use us as bold witnesses in a dark world. We ask that you would use us to constantly point to Christ. Father, where we sin and we fail you, it's not a trivial thing. Would you convict us of our sin? Would you mold us into the image of Christ that we might point back to the light that has become our life? Father, we are so thankful for the witness of John the Baptist. We're so thankful for the Gospel of John. We're so thankful that You speak to us afresh and anew through Your Word and by Your Spirit. And Father, I pray that these eternal truths would not escape us, but that they would be written on our heart, that we would glory in You as both our Creator and our Redeemer.